The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture for this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. If you're reading from the Black Bible in front of you, it's on page 976 and 977. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the word in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Amen. You guys can be seated. I'm just real quick for the, nah, or for the herd. If you are four years old to second grade, you're dismissed to go back there um, with, the, with the looses. Uh, so this morning, what we're going to be doing is turning our attention to a new sermon series, which we're going to uh, take some time and just unpack uh, what it is, what the sermon series is going to be about, and what it is not going to be about. So we're going to give uh, basically a series introduction to what we're going to be studying over the next four weeks, and then what we're going to do is move into our text and our first topic for this morning. And so As Tom had already alluded to during the pastoral prayer time, we're going to be um, talking about this idea, this idea of race, this idea of ethnicity, racism, this idea of reconciliation, and what the gospel has to say about this from God's word, from God's point of view, from God's understanding. We're going to see that from these six verses this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. And so I can already feel some of you sweating, all right, because you see the words Jesus and politics up on the screen, right? And so we're, we're getting sweaty in the armpits and beads of sweater on your forehead. And so we're going to unpack what this is and what this isn't. But first, let's just do this. Let's hit pause and let's pray and just ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to us. Um, what we want to do over these next four weeks, including today, is truly hear what God has to say to us about topics and about things that all of us are talking about because it's the political season, that all of us are talking about because they're just hot topics in our culture. And some of us have questions and a lot of us don't have answers, but my um, summary argument is going to be this, that God has spoken on these issues that are just invading our culture, invading our conversations, that politicians and people are putting forward with their own set of answers and these sorts of things, and we're trying to wrestle with what does it mean for me to be a Christian who's also an American, and I want to vote, but I don't know how to vote, and all these sorts of things. What we want to do is just hit pause, take a breath, and go, okay, I really believe God has spoken, 
And we want to hear what God has to say so that God, from His authoritative standpoint, as the one who is supremely good, knows all things, speaks in regard to these various issues we're going to talk about. We're going to step back and go, God, we just want to hear what you have to say. We want our hearts to be transformed, not by the political pundits, not by the news anchors on our favorite news stations, not by the articles we read, or not by the conversations we have around the water cooler at work. We genuinely want to step back and go, God, we want to know what you have to say on these things. So let's just hit pause and pray for that, and then we'll dive into our sermon this morning, okay? Let's pray. God, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we believe in His power and His authority to speak to us through the proclamation, through the preaching of Your Word, God. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to do what I am incapable of doing. I am incapable of articulating words and thoughts and ideas in such a way that convinces men, persuades them with plausible words of wisdom. God, I do not come this morning, nor do I come any morning with the power and the authority of the plausible words of wisdom. But what I do come in, in, in every morning and specifically this morning is with fear and trembling, recognizing that the matter that we're going to talk about is not a light matter. It's not an easy matter. It's not a simple matter. It's not say one thing and the problem's figured out kind of matter. But I do believe your word has something to say about race and racism and reconciliation. And it all orbits around the good news, the gospel of your cross. So God, I pray that you would give us not only ears to hear, not only eyes to see, but you truly give us hearts that are transformed by the powerful working of the Spirit in our lives this morning. We need you to do this, Spirit, so we ask you to do this, to show us Jesus from the text in regard to this topic. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So as you can see, what we're doing is we're starting a new, a new sermon series um, this morning, which we're going to call Jesus and Politics. It starts today, and it's going to run for three more weeks beyond, beyond today. And in light of the current political season that we find ourselves in, many of us are just wrestling with the craziness that is all around us and the craziness that just seems to be looming before us as we just rapidly shoot forward towards November the 8th. And for many of us, as we wade into the waters of this election cycle, we find ourselves asking a lot of questions. I've had numerous conversations with you, um, several of you in the congregation. I've had conversations with just friends who are in other, other parts of the states and other cities as they're wrestling and talking with people in their congregations, as just people are going, you know, like, we, we just sense that this election cycle is just different. There's just different things on the radar. People are talking about just different things differently than they have in the past. And what we're generally trying to do is just wrestle, like, like what are we supposed to think? And what are we supposed to do? And how are we supposed to react to just all of the stuff that's going on around us? And as I said just a, a few minutes ago, a lot of us are asking questions, but many of us are just not finding solid answers on just how do we think about all the stuff that's just going on right now in, in regard to this on this um, peculiar cultural season that we find ourselves here in the United States. Now, like 
most of us, I think one of the main questions that I'm asking myself and I'm sure you're asking yourself is this, like, okay, so when November the 8th comes and when I go to the polling booth, like, what am I going to do in that moment? Like, who am I going to vote for? How should I think properly in, in that moment? And depending on who you talk to or which articles you read, which news stations you watch, the answers to that specific question are just all over the gamut. I mean, the spectrum is wide and far and varying. And so as you read articles or listen to the news or you talk to friends or as you're formulating your own opinions, there's just opinions all over the place, right? So you talk to some people and what they're doing is they're going to the voting booth and they're going to vote for Hillary simply because they're just pro-Hillary. You have some who are going to go to the voting booth and they're going to vote for Trump simply because they're just pro-Trump. For others, they're going to vote for Hillary not because they're necessarily for her and her platform and these sorts of things, but because they're just simply anti-Trump. That's why they're going to vote vote for Hillary. And others are going to the booth and doing the exact same thing in reverse. They're going to vote for Trump not because they're necessarily behind him or for him, but simply because they're just against Hillary Clinton. Others still are adopting the mindset of voting for the lesser of two evils. You hear that phrase tossed around a lot. While some are approaching this election cycle by saying their vote is not for a certain presidential candidate, but it is for an endorsement of a platform. So what they're doing is approaching the situation by saying, you know what, I'm not so much gung-ho, too enthusiastic, thumbs up behind any of our candidates that are running per se. My vote is not an endorsement for them, but it is an endorsement for the platform which they they support and they're proposing and putting forward. And even further, some are just simply looking at the candidates, looking at the platforms and simply saying, man, this cycle, this election cycle, this presidential season, um, I'm just going to choose to not vote at all. While others are going an alternative route by seriously considering for the first time a third party candidate to vote for. Now, it's no wonder that in all of these opinions, confusion abounds, and we find ourselves just not sure what to do. And it's because of all of this that I, as your pastor, want to wade into these waters with you. Believe me, there's been many a sweaty night leading up to this morning, okay? Um, I've been praying and asking for prayer this morning, right? Because, I mean, this is, this is no light topic, right? Some of us, our, po- our, our political viewpoint is more religious than our religious viewpoint. Like, we love politics more than we love religion. And we all have opinions formed already. So here I am coming and saying, like, what I could have just done and been like, oh, I want to take my hands off the subject. I don't want to try to help guide us from the Scriptures. I don't want to shepherd you. I want to shepherd you in every other area of life. But I just really don't want to wade into these potentially messy waters. And I just feel like God is calling me as your pastor to, to attempt to shepherd you according to the words of Christ from God's self-revelation to us, the scriptures, and try to pick up certain topics that are just being talked about in our culture by politicians and others, and just to step back and go, okay, because the Bible speaks about this, what does the Bible say? So that we can be transformed by the word of God and then go forward and act accordingly. And as we do this, as I'm wading into these waters with you, I'm just doing so with a double burden. A double burden. The first burden is this, is that I'm just burdened by the reality that God has spoken to us through his word. That politics is not some area of life that is to be void of what God has to say through his word to us. 
I'm burdened by the reality that God has spoken to us through His Word. And in order for us to think clearly in these days, we have to know what God says from His Word. See, the aim of this sermon series is not about the denigration or the approval of any certain candidate or any certain political party. That's not what we're going to be about. This isn't going to be like some pro, pro-Trump four-week sermon series or pro-Hillary four-week sermon series where I stand up and denigrate you or denigrate another person or put you down because you're thinking one way or thinking another. That's not what the point of the sermon series is about. What we're not doing this sermon series is raising the banner or beating the drum for any one particular person. That's not what it's about. Instead, the aim of the sermon series is a way for me to help guide us as a church as we think about these certain election cycle topics and to see them from God's point of view. My aim is not to tell you what to think. See, I think that's unfortunate a lot in our, in our culture. Everyone wants to tell us what to think, but no one teaches us how to think. And my hope is that from the Word and the next four weeks, including today, that we will go to the Word and go, okay, I see what God has to say about racism, about race, about ethnicity, about the gospel, and the impact that it had on me when it reconciled me to God the Father through Christ the Son and the way that the gospel is meant to have an impact horizontally as I look at people who think differently, have different likes, different cultural dislikes, who have different skin color or whatever it is, like the gospel that reconciled me this way, it actually means something on the horizontal plane. And it actually means that like, I should look at what other people are saying about this and it should inform the way that I promote somebody or don't promote somebody. But I'm not going to stand up here and tell you what to think. What I want you to do is to be students of the Scripture for us to go to the Word and go, I see what God says, and because I've been informed of what God says, I now know how to think. God, give me the grace to go forward and to act accordingly. I'm ultimately doing this with the hope that as we see God in His Word, hearing what He has to say, that we would be students of the Scriptures and brothers and sisters in Christ who go forward and act according to God and His revelation. That's the first burden I have for this four-week sermon series. The second is this. I'm just burdened that in all of this, and what I mean by the word this, that in all of this, this political season, thinking through conversations about voting and whatnot and everything far and few in between, I'm burdened that in all of this, that we genuinely think Christianly. That we genuinely think Christianly. See, for those of us here this morning who are here by faith, believing in Jesus as our only hope of salvation, I want us to see that we are not Americans first who just happen to be Christians. That's the wrong way of thinking about the situation. We are not Americans first who just happen to be Christians. Instead, we are Christians first who just happen to be Americans. And over the course of this sermon series, I want us to see that this really does mean something for this season that we find ourselves in. Our heavenly citizenship, as a result of our faith in Christ, is genuinely meant to impact our earthly citizenship. Because we are born-again Christians, there should be a way of doing, a way of thinking, a way of speaking, and even a way of voting that differentiates us from the world because our citizenship is in heaven first. 
and we just so happen to be earthly citizens of this country called America. See, voting Republican is not what differentiates us as heavenly citizens. Voting Democrat is not what differentiates us as heavenly citizens. Voting morals, voting values, this is not what makes us different from the world. Mormons, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, agnostics, atheists, all of them can vote Republican. All of them can vote Democrat. All of them can vote in a certain sense for values and morals and good standards of living, those sort of things. These things are not what differentiates us in our heavenly citizenship and the way that we think and react and go forward and do. Listen, the thing that differentiates heavenly citizens from the world is their desire to first see what God the Father has to say on any given matter from his word and then to act according to what he has to say so that God will receive the glory in the end. God's glory, his fame, his name is the driving desire of heavenly citizens. And so as we go and say, okay, I have a heavenly citizenship as a result of the gospel, I want to see what is going to bring God the most glory because I also recognize that I'm a citizen in a democratic republic. Like I have the the office of citizen. I'm supposed to be voting. I'm supposed to be thinking rightly in these ways. So God, I don't want this reality to trump this reality. What I want is this vertical reality, the fact that I'm right with the Father through Christ the Son to inform then what I go forward and do, not so that way we can put our hope or trust or rest in any political system, but so that we can ultimately see Christ the King receive the glory that is due His name. So to think Christianly in these matters is displayed in the desire to first hear what Jesus has to say and then turn and walk according to what he has said. So, with all that said, that was just the sermon series introduction, all right? You thought the sermon actually started. Well, tricked you, okay? So with all that said, what we're going to do is we're going to turn to the Scriptures. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 11 through verse 16. And here in these verses, what we're going to do is engage our first topic, the topic of race, this idea of reconciliation and the gospel. Okay? So now the reason why we're calling this sermon race, reconciliation, and the gospel is because the Apostle Paul connects these ideas all together in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have not taken the time to read the book of Ephesians lately, do it. Do it. Incredibly, incredibly relevant for the days that we're living in right now. But what Paul's going to do in Ephesians chapter 2 is he connects this idea of the gospel, he connects this idea of reconciliation between us, the nations of the world, the reconciliation we need with the Father, and then he connects it to the realities of reconciliation which can come between races and ethnic groups which stand in opposition or in alienation or in separation to each other. He does all of this in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you remember last week, we studied Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. That was the text that we used at the end of our last sermon series where we talked about the good news of God's grace. And we saw the good news of God's grace, and a picture of it from these verses. We saw that because of sin, we are dead, enslaved, and condemned. This is the universal condition of humanity which affects every living soul. But God, 
Because of his great mercy and love, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 5, by grace you have been saved. That's the picture that we saw in 2, 1 through 10. And now when we shift down into verses 11 and start going forward in 11 through 16, we're going to see that Paul makes a shift from the language of God's grace to the language of God's cross. Now once again, Paul points us to the separation that exists between God and man because of sin, but once again, he lifts our eyes to the blood of the crucified Christ as our only hope of reconciliation with God. And what I love about these verses is that Paul just doesn't leave it there. He just doesn't say, hey, listen, that grace thing, remember how dead and sin you were and how good the good news of God's grace is? Yeah, we're like, yeah, we see that. Then Paul jumps down to verse 11. He says, hey, remember just how separated and alienated you were? Yeah, Paul, we remember that. Hey, the good news of the cross is you can actually be reconciled to God. Man, that is good news. And then he's like, well, that's just really all I wanted to say. Nothing else that needs to be said. He doesn't do that. Starting in verses 14 to 16, he moves on down the line. And for Paul, the good news of God's cross, it not only has implications for us and our reconciliation to God the Father, but it also has implications for how separated races and ethnicities can genuinely be reconciled to one another. See, Paul's driving idea in these verses is that horizontal reconciliation horizontal reconciliation between alienated peoples, separated races and ethnicities, horizontal reconciliation between alienated peoples, it happens through vertical reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ. See, the hinge point this morning is just going to all orbit around the cross of Jesus Christ. You're going to get to verse 13, and there's going to be that particular phrase where he's going to talk about the blood of of the cross, the blood of Christ. And he's going to say the blood of the cross not only reconciles us with the Father, but it's by the blood of the cross which brings us all onto a level playing ground before the Father, and it tears down, it breaks down, it destroys the dividing wall of hostility which can exist between races and ethnic groups and nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. And what it does is it puts us all on the level playing field before God the Father, a level playing field where we all need God's good news, God's blood, God's cross. So this is just what we're going to see this morning. We're going to try to work through this somewhat, somewhat quickly here. There's going to be a lot that could be said this morning, but I'm just trying to narrow it down to certain ideas so that this becomes basically a conversation starter for our church, okay? You're going to get done with this sermon, and a lot of you guys are going to be disappointed. One, probably because the preaching's bad. Two, because you just wish more could be said, okay? And that's just true. I agree with probably both of those, all right? And so when we get to the end, you're going to probably want more, but just recognize this for what it is. This is a conversation starter about this as our church seeks to chew on these things from the viewpoint of God according to the gospel. So let's look at verse 11, 12, and 13, all right? Notice what Paul does here. He's going to first talk about the vertical reconciliation that all humanity needs with God, specifically that phrase, the Gentiles. Verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, that was the nickname given to the Gentiles. We're going to talk about this here in a little bit. Basically, the idea between Gentiles is every race, every ethnic group that has ever existed and it currently exists right now or ever will exist that is not Jewish 
the Bible has the category calling them a Gentile. So when you read that word Gentile, what it's doing is it's talking about every racial group, every ethnic group that's ever existed that is not Jewish, okay? So you go back to 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, all of you non-Jews in the flesh, you had a nickname from the Jewish people called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jewish people, which is made by, in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember this. You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Essentially, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off from Christ, from God's people, from the promises, from hope, from God, those of you who once were far off from all of these things, far off from God's people, the Jews, you have now actually been brought near to God and near to God's people. How? By the blood of Christ. Verses 11 through 13, we see a picture of the vertical reconciliation with God that we can have. Bob Dylan, anybody? A couple people, one, there you go. Two brothers, right there, Bob Dylan, all right? In 1989, he wrote a song, and the song goes like this. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts, Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. Everything is broken. Like, there's nobody who disagrees with that statement. You look at the world, things are broken. And one of the most obvious evidences of the brokenness that we live in, the world because of sin, is when it comes to the brokenness that exists among racial groups and ethnic groups of the world. Truly, everything is broken. And beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul points out the ultimate brokenness which is felt by all humanity, namely the brokenness of sin which separates man from God and the brokenness of sin which separates man from each other. So when you look at verse 11, it begins with a description of the alienation that exists between God and all the non-Jewish ethnic groups in the world, the Gentiles. See, God himself had chosen Israel from all the peoples of the world. And he had focused almost all of his saving, self-revealing work on this Jewish people for almost 2,000 years before Jesus shows up. And because this was true, the Jewish people were meant to be a light to the nations. They had a job. You're the ones who know God the Father. As you see down here in verse 15, according to the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances, you guys are the ones who are God's chosen people the commonwealth of Israel, and you have a job. You're to be a light to the nations who don't have this privileged relationship so that as you interact with God the Father in this way, then you will become a gospel witness, so to speak, to the nations of the world who do not know God in a relationship. And so Paul reminds his readers that as Gentiles, because they just by dint of the fact were not part of the Jewish people, they were, verse 12, separated from Christ, 
alienated from God's people, strangers to the covenants of promise. They were hopeless. They were godless in this world. This is what it meant for Gentiles to be outside the covenant people of God. They were separated from God, and therefore they were separated from God's people. But then what God does is he steps into the midst of all of this and he does something to change this separation from God and this separation from people. He sent Jesus into the world. That's verse 13. So notice how this separation and alienation becomes reconciliation in verse 13. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off from God, far off from God's people, you have actually now been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ, Paul's Gentile readers moved from being far off to being brought near. By the blood of Christ, they not only found reconciliation with God, but they also actually found reconciliation with the Jewish people. So the question becomes a question of, well, how? Like, how does the blood of Christ actually accomplish this? Like, what is Christ's death on the cross? That's what Paul is referencing there at the end of verse 13. When you read that little phrase, by the blood of Christ, it's a reference to Jesus' work on the cross. So the question goes, okay, by the work of the cross, Jesus was doing something, reconciling people to the Father and reconciling ethnicities and races to one another. But the question becomes, well, how does the blood of Christ, the work of the cross, actually accomplish all this? Or as one pastor put it, how did Christ's dying on the cross overcome this separation and alienation between God and between Jews and all the other ethnic groups of the world? Well, the answer is found down there in verses 14 and 16. Paul's going to unpack how the blood of Christ actually reconciles us to the Father and to one another. Look what Paul writes in verse 14 through 16. For he, Jesus, for Jesus himself is our peace. He has made us, that word us there is a reference to Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one. We used to be separated, remember? But now we're both one. And he has broken down in his flesh a reference to the cross the dividing wall of hostility. So there used to be a dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. But now Jesus, who is our peacemaker, he has made us both one who used to be divided by a wall of hostility. He has now broken down this wall of hostility in his flesh. Well, how did he do this? How did the blood of Christ, how did him in his flesh break down this dividing wall of hostility? Verse 15, he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that two things could happen. One, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. This is how he made peace. And two, so that he might actually reconcile Jew and Gentile to God the Father in one body, the church. And he did this, gospel reference again, through the cross. This is how he killed the hostility. See, what Paul is ultimately saying is this, as long as the Old Testament law, specifically the law understood as commandments expressed in ordinances, as long as the Old Testament law was the foundation of how people are reconciled to God, the Gentiles would always be on the outside, 
and the Jews themselves would ultimately be alienated from God because even for them, by works of the law, no flesh is willing to be justified. No, no flesh will be justified. So do you see the problem there with the law? For the Gentiles, the law always put them on the outside. Separated from God's people, separated from God himself. Now the Jews are standing on this side over here thinking this, because of the law and my obedience and adherence to it alone, that makes me God's people, and that alone makes me right with God. But then Paul comes, read Romans, and says, no, we all stand on on." on on level footing, on even ground. Just because you obey the law and the commandments, that doesn't make you right with God the Father. We're not justified by obedience to the law. We're not declared right with the Father through just mere obedience to God's rules and commandments and regulations. We're right with the Father because of the work of Christ and our trust and our faith and our rest in Him. So Paul is basically coming along and saying, listen, if our hope of being made right with God the Father, vertical reconciliation, and our hope of being reconciled to one another on the horizontal plane simply rests on our adherence to the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. We're all toast. We need somebody who can come in and go, I see this thing, which is the dividing wall of hostility this way, and which is the dividing wall of hostility this way, and we need somebody who can come in and go, break that baby down. And Paul says, the one who broke down that wall was Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection on the cross. That's the good news of the cross. Paul says, by the blood of his cross, Jesus made a way for all races and ethnicities to be reconciled to God the Father. He's the one who abolished the law and commandments because they could never truly reconcile us to God and in their place as a way to Create in himself one new man, and so that he might reconcile Jew and Gentile both to God in one body, Jesus gave himself through the cross. In all of this, Paul is just simply wanting us to see the good news of the cross is key for understanding reconciliation vertically between man and God and horizontally between man and one another. Again, one pastor puts it this way. I love this quote. He just sums it up so nicely. He says, listen. The blood of Jesus is the only way that sinners can come to God. And therefore, the blood of Jesus is the way that God has designed for all races and ethnic groups to come to each other in peace. Namely, by coming to God in Christ, together. The blood of Jesus, shed for the forgiveness of our sins, is the only way any human from any ethnic group can be reconciled to God. And therefore, the blood of Jesus is the way God has designed for every ethnic group to be reconciled to one another as we are truly reconciled to God together. See, by the blood of the cross, Colossians 1.20 says, God is reconciling all things to himself. And this all things includes not only man's relationship to God, 
but it also includes man's relationship to one another, no matter race, tribe, tongue, language, ethnicity. Now, the implications of this are huge. Like, right, some of you are probably thinking this, like, man, like, that, I'm so glad for the Jew and the Gentiles back in Paul's day, but it's like, what's the deal now? Like, right, I barely understand the idea that I'm a Gentile, and I know I'm definitely not a Jew. So, like, how is the good news that Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to each other by the blood of Christ? Because they've both been reconciled to the Father by the blood of God. Like, how is that good news for race and reconciliation today? But see, the implications of this vertical and horizontal reconciliation by the blood of Christ, it's huge. It has extreme implications for us today. These verses in Ephesians 2 aren't some far-off reality which existed for just Jews and Gentiles. The divide between Jew and Gentile which existed, existed along religious, cultural, and racial lines. And those divisions, those dividing wall of hostility of religious and Cultural differences and racial lines, those lines and dividing walls still exist among races and ethnicities of our day. Unfortunately, you don't have to search very long and you don't have to search very hard in order to find the ugly evidence of racism alive and well in our culture. The idea behind racism is this, is whether in thought or in action, I look at someone who's different than me Skin color-wise, hair color-wise, ethnicity-wise, religion-wise, any of these sorts of things, cultural differences, it's when I look at someone who's different from me, and what I do is I value me above them because of those differences, ranging anywhere from cultural likes and dislikes to skin color, anywhere in between. I look at that person and go, a person's different. I value or distinguish myself to be better or above that person because of these differences. Unfortunately, like I said, you don't have to look long and hard to find this alive and well in our culture. So when it comes to the topic of racism, what we must see is that racism is just, just simply a gospel inhibitor. If by the blood of his cross, Jesus is the only way to God the Father, then we when we racially act towards others, we are in a sense prohibiting them from coming and knowing Jesus as their only source of salvation. Racism from Christians and racism within Christ's church is an awful and absolute betrayal of the one new humanity which Jesus created by the blood of his cross. Like, do you see this? For anyone who claims the name of Christ to racially act towards somebody, to value themselves, distinguish themselves as better because of differences, to look at them and to say, and I'm talking about Christians and people within the church, to look in such a way at them and go, because of our differences, I truly believe I am better than you. What you're doing is you're rebuilding that wall of hostility which Christ has broken down by his blood. Because the gospel says, no matter your skin color, no matter your language, no matter your tribe, no matter where you live, no matter your ancestry, no matter your ethnicity, all these differences are on the numerator side of the fraction. The common denominator that exists among all humanity is this. We're all in equal need of God's grace. 
The cross is the leveling ground for all ethnicities, tribes, and tongues, and races. Because what I should do is look at someone who's different from me and not say, you're different from me, therefore I think I'm better than you. What I should do is look at somebody who's racially or ethnically different from me and say, man, I see that I'm in need of God's grace, and I see that you're in need of God's grace. And so that wall becomes to trickle down now as I begin to interact with this person, and they begin to interact with me not based on our differences racially or ethnically, but based upon our unification and our need of God's grace. Like, I think that's really what Paul's driving at here. That's the illustration that he's trying to give us when he's referencing how the blood of Christ brings those who are far off, brings them near, creating one new man in place of the two, reconciling us, Jew-Gentile, both to God through the cross. And because of the gospel, because of the gospel, all races and ethnicities have been reconciled as one new man. It is right for the conduct of believers to keep in step with the truth of the gospel. In light of how we have been reconciled vertically with God, there is a conduct that is right in how we live out this reconciliation horizontally. The gospel, as one pastor puts it, governs not just our beliefs, but also our actions. There is gospel belief and there's gospel behavior. And some beliefs contradict the gospel and some actions contradict the gospel. So one of the questions we just have to ask ourselves as believers who have been vertically reconciled with God is this. Do racial thoughts and behaviors contradict the gospel or do they keep in step with the truth of the gospel? And hopefully what is becoming incredibly clear is this, is that what we've learned from Ephesians chapter 2 is that racism, racial thought, racial conduct, racial actions, this is conduct which is just simply not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's not in step with the truth of the gospel. So how do we, by God's grace, keep in step with the truth of the gospel? In specifically regard to race, ethnicity, reconciliation, it begins by recognizing that one of the central cadences of the gospel walk is the way Christ's death on the cross breaks down the dividing wall of hostility which can exist between races and ethnicities. So when we interact with someone who's racially or ethnically different, from us, what this should not do is cause us to pridefully think we're better than they are. Yes, there's differences in the color of our skin, and there are differences in our cultural likes and dislikes. See, like, this is what I love about the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, you need to become like me. The gospel doesn't say, because you're black, you're different, and you need to become like me. The gospel doesn't say, because you're white, you're different, and you need to become like me. Like, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the but the well, the Samaritan, he doesn't say, hey, first become a Jew and then we'll figure this out. He doesn't negate the Samaritanness of her, her race, her ethnicity. He looks at her and he doesn't see a racial outcast. He looks at her and he sees a woman in need of God's redeeming grace. And it breaks down that dividing wall of hostility and it ushers Christ to be the example for us on what it looks like to enter into relationships that our culture might deem inappropriate 
but to be fueled by the gospel to go forward and to form relationships, to have conversations. That's what I love about the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, become like me, then we'll talk. The gospel says, no, you're black, no, you're white. You have this cultural like, you have this cultural dislike. These things are true. We're not asking you to change these things. They are who God has crafted you to be. But the common denominator that exists between us is this. We need God's grace. The common denominator which puts us all on the level ground is our common need to be brought near to God the Father by the blood of Christ. We both stand, no matter race or ethnicity, in the utter dependence on God's grace. See, any kind of racially or ethnically based exclusion ultimately sends the wrong message about the basis of our acceptance with God. If the gospel was this, I'm white and you're black, and you need to stop existing in your blackness, or to turn it the other way and go, I'm black and you're white, and you need to stop existing in your whiteness. Then, when we both become homogenous, one like the other, then, then we can have a conversation. When you become more like me, that's when we can begin to have a conversation. Because when you become more like me, then, I mean, hey, obviously, I'm in good with God, so you need to become more like me so that I can become right with God. When we start to operate and act racially or towards others, excluding them, because of their ethnicity or their race, what it ultimately sends is the wrong message about the basis of our acceptance with God. Racism has a way of subtly suggesting that something about your race, something about your skin color, something about your ethnicity, something about your culture needs to change in order to become more like me because when you become more like me, then that's when you will be right with God. Like that's the evil insidious idea operating behind racism and it just ought not be. Paul has plainly pointed out that this is not the case. This is in the gospel. As agents of reconciliation, we are compelled to now act in ways that rightly promote the gospel toward others who are racially and ethnically different from us. So what are just two takeaways? Two takeaways for those of us who've been reconciled to God through the cross. For some of us, what we can do is we can look at verses 11 through 13 and go, that's me. We're not boasting in it. We're not being prideful in it. But we look at that and go, man, I know I was once separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, strangers to his promise. I had no hope. I was without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, I, who was once far off, I have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is true of me. One practical thing you can do is just remember that the men and women that you interact with on a daily basis, no matter race or ethnicity, they are created in the image of God. And because you now love God, because he first loved you, verses 11 through 13, what you can now do is go out and love your neighbor because you have been reconciled to the Father through the cross. I think it just really comes down to one of the many answers that it comes down to when you look at the breadth of Scripture is this is that this person who is racially or ethnically different from you, they are created in the image of God. And when Christ tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, which we can now do because God has loved us, which means we can now love God, love God and love neighbor is now something we can do as we are filled and fueled by the Spirit of the living God. So this looks like asking questions of, like, who are you eating meals with? Like, who are you building friendships with? 
Like, who are you inviting to community group, and who are you inviting to church? Who are you investing in at work, and who are you just loving on in your neighborhood? How are you praying for people? Like, remembering that men and women are created in the image of God, that we're called to love God and love neighbor because we've been reconciled to God through the cross. Like, this even has an impact on, like, how you vote. So for those of us who haven't been reconciled to God, what are some just practical takeaways in that area? Like, right, you look at verses 11 through 13 and go like, man, like, I've heard this guy talking and I don't quite understand the race and reconciliation, that kind of stuff. Like, I'm still hung up back there in verses like 11, 12, and 13. Like, I read 12 and I go, man, like, I know that I'm still separated from Christ. I'm still alienated from his people. I am hopeless. I am godless. I'm without God in the world. So if you're here this morning and you haven't been reconciled to God, I think it's the twofold thing. You look at verse 12 and what you do is you recognize this is me. This is describing my spiritual condition. I'm separated. I'm alienated. I'm hopeless. I'm godless. But the good news of the gospel rolls around in verse 13 so that as you look in 12 and you see your reflection, spiritually speaking, in verse 12, what you do is you roll to verse 13 and go, but now, Remember verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off can now be brought near by the blood of Christ. And it comes down to how are you going to respond to that this morning? See, some of us need to respond in repentance and faith, trusting and believing that verse 13 can be yours because Christ has accomplished it for you. That's how you need to respond this morning. For others of you, you need to respond through verse 12 this morning, recognizing these things are true of me, I need Jesus. Some of us just need to reckon, recognize that, man, verses 11, 13, that was once my condition because I am now in Christ, but now I need to like, rethink. Like, right, I haven't been walking really in step with the gospel because I'm making the claim I'm vertically reconciled here, but when I look at my life, whether there's explicit outward actions or just inward beliefs that I'm harboring in my heart, I'm, I'm, I'm operating in a way that is racially not kosher with the gospel of Christ. And it just comes down to confessing that and your need for God to change that. Let's pray. God, you are good and you are great. And I ask that you would do great work in us and through us. God, I know there's a thousand other things that could, that could be said. I know there's many things that probably could have been spoken better or articulated in a way that made more sense. Things that probably shouldn't have been spoken, the things that were spoken, but the, the bottom line is this, Father, you are good and you are able to take our missteps and turn them towards the right direction, which ultimately leads us to you. And God, I'm just asking that you do that, that through everything that was spoken today and everything that was sung today and everything that will be sung here in a couple of minutes, that you will be magnified. We want your name to be praised, and we ask that you would do so for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.